You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I had the pleasure of talking with Dave Ulrich, the father of modern HR, professor at the University of Michigan and partner at the RBL Group this week. And we had a fascinating conversation about building human capabilities and doing it by creating value for the customer and always working backwards, whether you're a manager, you're a leader, a senior leader, you start with the customer and you work back to that frontline employee, to the frontline manager. So I think we can all learn something from Dave and thinking about working from the customer backwards, thinking about business from the outside in. Your job as a leader is to make someone else better. As a leader, empower others. How do I make others on my team more effective than any of us would be individually. And when we can manage that process, we are successful as an emerging leader and our team and our organization is also successful. Organization outperforms talent four to one. This week on Leading Up, we're speaking with the person known worldwide as the father of modern HR, Dave Ulrich. He's a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and a partner at the RBL Group. He's the best-selling author of over 30 books and a world-renowned speaker with thought leadership that has touched the lives of millions of people around the world. Dave has received Lifetime Achievement Awards, honorary doctorates. He's a distinguished fellow at the National Academy of Human Resources. Dave, welcome to the podcast. You make me feel tired already. Thanks, Alan. It's great to see you again and great to chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. So Dave, I see a huge disconnect between leaders and followers regarding the future of work. What I see is leaders want people in the office and people have found new ways to be productive at home and don't seem to be too thrilled with the idea of going into the office full-time. What do you make of that disconnect? You know, there's always a number of disconnects. We like to call them paradoxes. And to some extent, paradoxes are inevitable in an organization. Do I work in the office or at home? And should I work hybrid? Should I work full-time from home? It's an incredibly personalized decision. It depends on the job. It depends on the nature of the work. It depends on the person. And so good leaders don't issue edicts. They navigate the tensions. They navigate the paradoxes. They navigate the choices. And they personalize the opportunity so that it works for both the employee and for the company. Any leader who comes out and says, you'll be in the office all the time, or you'll be at home all the time, or any employee says, I'll be at home all the time, I'll be in the office all the time, I get really worried because there aren't edicts that demand one right size. It's navigating the tension between in the office and at the office. The other thing I'd highlight, Alan, is the boundaries of work have clearly changed. We used to define work as a place. I get up in the morning, I go to work, and then I'm in my office. Now, work doesn't have to be a place. The boundaries of work are whenever you're creating value for a customer. And that can occur in an office. It can occur in a coffee shop. It can occur in a hotel. It can occur in an airplane. And so I think we're seeing a new definition of what work means and where it can occur. And so you mentioned edict, and I'm thinking, I've read in newspapers, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan, Amazon, Tesla, and the big boss says, everyone will return to the office. And it's funny because they've been pounding this drum for the past year. And it doesn't appear to be working. I'm just curious, who's winning this battle, leaders or followers? The ultimate battle is neither leader nor follower, it's customer. Are we able, with Jamie Dimon, to create a product or service that customers will buy? And if I were giving comments to those folks, I would say, 
look at the agenda of creating products or services so that your customers will have a better experience and continue to buy it. Where employees work may not be the key to that happening. The other thing I'd say is those companies face a bit of a risk. If I'm a really talented employee and have choice, where might I work? Now, in the short term, that risk is mitigated because you've got a set of people that it may be difficult to lose. I think Twitter faced a risk when Musk came in and was fairly hard-handed, and I think he's admitted that. The risk was you start losing people, which is maybe necessary. But when you lose people who are critical to your long-term success, you're facing a long-term risk. So that would be my counsel. And again, I wish there were good, bad, right, wrong answers. I think the world lives in a sense of paradox and duality. And being able to say, when should an employee work in what setting is really not as much about the employee or the setting as it is what can that employee do to create value for a customer so that they'll continue to buy our product and service? Obviously, at Tesla, in the manufacturing plant, wherever it is, in Germany, in China, in Texas, employees have to be there in person. On the other hand, in the bank, many of the employees don't have to be in person. And so you live in that inherent tension. I think the winner or loser should not be the employee or the leader. I think the winner or loser should be the customer. So your advice to CEOs and CHROs right now is look at it from the customer back and make it a very personal thing. Yeah, because if you don't win in the marketplace with customers, there is no workplace. I think sometimes we forget that. We get all excited in some of the HR and leadership communities, care for your people, care for your people. Of course we care for our people. But here's the paradox. If you don't compete in the marketplace, there are no more people. And so having the ability to navigate care and competition, empathy and success in the market becomes key. And my personal view is we're in a lot of variance and debate about where people work and are we hybrid, are we full-time? I'm betting that will balance out in the next six to 12 months. People will find the right way. If some companies are going to be three days here, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Some companies are going to be five days, like building a plant or a, in a technology firm doing high-tech science. Some companies are going to be all remote because it's an information business. In my world, and Alan, I know in your world, we don't have to have an office. The first book I wrote was called Organizational Capability, and we dedicated it to the Toshiba laptop computer without whom we could not have written the book because we wrote it on an airplane. And every international flight was a chapter. That's the new world of work for more people than not. My prediction is if you're an emerging leader, experiment. Work at home, work in the office, work in a coffee shop. The boundary is creating value for a customer and then negotiate with the employee to figure out what works for you and for him or her. Makes sense. So let's look at this through the different lens. I want to think about the state of leadership development and love to get your thoughts. So Gallup has been studying employee engagement for 30 plus years and it's near all time lows. And they study the key factors that drive employee engagement. And they say the number one factor is your manager. We've, over the last 30 years, invested billions in leadership development, employee engagement measurements and programs and interventions. And we've made little progress. And in fact, if I look at the great resignation in 2022, quiet quitting today, burnout is off the charts. You might even say it's gotten worse. I'm curious, what's your take on the state of leadership development today? You know, I think sometimes in leadership development, we try to say, here's what a leader should do, so go do it. And we start with the leader. I think leadership development, much like what I just said about employees working on the office or at home, should start with the receiver. Leadership development is not going into a course and saying, here's my material. It's going into a course and saying, here's the participant. You're a mid-level manager. You're a first-line leader. You're an executive. What knowledge or information do you need that will help you do your job better? I believe that the efficacy of leadership development starts with what's the challenge you're wrestling with strategically positioning your firm, 
organizationally, making things happen, personally, having the energy to do your job. If you as the leader can articulate the challenge you need to work on, we as the facilitators, and Alan, I consider you a brilliant facilitator with the work you've done, we will help you discover how to work with your problem. I'll give an example. I was doing a course and I had people, it was a group of senior HR executives. What's the biggest challenge you face in your job? And I had them write it down on the back of their name tent. And I said, look at your name tent. If you were in front of your board of directors, if you were in front of an investment community, would that be the challenge they want you to work on? Interesting question. Some said yes, some said no. If they said no, I said, then, then change the challenge because you want to work on issues that will create value with your executives, with your investors. And then we identified what's the most common challenge the 20 of you have. And we spent the next two hours on it. That's a different way to do leadership development. It's leadership development as a source of value creation to the participant. Instead of saying, here's my theory of leadership, take out your notes and write down what I say. Those notes have a very short shelf life. That's the direction I hope we would be going. Yeah, I love it. And you're framing it as sort of a problem-solving exercise. Is that right? Absolutely. The word I'd use is value creation. We are here to help you as a leader create value by solving problems. Think about the customer of your company, not your employees, not your peers, but the outside customer. Write down, why do they buy our product versus somebody else's? And then begin to say, what is it I can do as an emerging leader in terms of my time, my energy, the strategy I set, the goals I execute, the people I manage? What can I do to help that customer have a better experience with our company? Yeah, I love it. Everything comes outside in from the customer backwards. And I think it's a great reminder to all of us when we start thinking about leadership development and you come away and say, you know, if I had to summarize decades of thinking, we don't ever spend enough time talking about the customer and the problems they have and what we do for them and how we make the customer's life better with our products or services. I think you more than anyone I know has championed that notion of outside in. If you build a leadership competence model, go look at your brand. What is it you promised your customers? And to what extent does your competence model reflect the promises to your customers? If your competencies don't reflect the promises you've made to your customers, you're encouraging customers to buy on A, B, and C, and you're telling your leaders to do D, E, and F. Whenever we work with a firm, we try to start, it's really weird, it says, help us build leadership. And I said, oh, we got to work on culture. And I could see their eyes glaze over. Here it comes again, the warm, fuzzy, you know, don't be toxic. Somebody just published, don't have a toxic culture. And I thought, wow, that's an insight. I mean, that doesn't take a lot of brains. I said, let me suggest you do this with culture. Step one, articulate a set of values. Got it. Everybody's got them. Innovation, creativity, service. Step two, go to your best customers and say to them, are these the values you want us to have? I was in one company once, I asked that, and their number one value was to be the most profitable firm in their industry. And I said, you know, if I'm a customer, that's not a high priority for me. <laughs> number three, customer. What are the behaviors you need to see from us so that we live those values? Let the customer define service. Let the customer define collaboration. Let the customer define innovation. Question four, when we live those values with a customer, will you buy more from us? Go through those four steps again. Have a set of values. Are these the values you want us to have? You define the behaviors. When we live those, will you buy more from us? And if the answer is no, go back to step one. Value is not what I do. It's what others get because of what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. You know, Alan, let me tell you where I learned it by asking you a question. I know you've been in a relationship a long time. Have you ever given your partner a gift? Of course you have. 
who defines the value of the gift that you give, you or your partner, the receiver? Yeah, that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's a simple principle. When I first got married a long time ago, I got my wife tickets to sporting events. And her comment was, enjoy yourself. <laughs> and now I have to think, so what would be meaningful to her? But I love that very simple principle. Values defined by the receiver more than the giver. And if we get that within relationships outside of work or as a leadership development or as an organization building a culture, I think we're going to be more likely to succeed. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. ask the question for this early career aspiring leader in the future, how might they use that information? How do I think about building that leadership brand for the individual? You know, if you're an emerging leader, the question you might want to ask yourself is, what do I want to be known for as a leader? Do I want to be known as innovative, creative, funny? I struggled with that. I'm pretty intense. I'm pretty serious. And I decided about 30 years ago, I wanted to be known as engaging as well. And so I had to look, who's engaging? What can I do? Can I become more like Alan Todd? I want to be known as a leader. And then to say, if that's an identity I want to be known for by others, why? And then to say, what are the behaviors I can begin to enact to get there? I'll give an example at a personal level. We all have predispositions. I am extremely introverted. I'm participating in a nine-day in-person workshop, and I will not have dinner with anybody but my wife and myself for nine days. That's just my style. I know when I teach, I want to be known as somebody who engages, who gets people involved, who's engaging, more extroverted. So what do I do? I watch people who teach. And in that moment, I can manage those behaviors. So if I were coaching an emerging leader, and when I have the privilege of coaching even a more senior leader, I start with the question, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for by those who you access? The second question I ask, and I think it's in some ways more critical to the emerging and even senior leader, how often does an employee leave an interaction with you feeling better or worse about himself or herself? Notice it's that outside-in logic again. You should be thinking about that. That's easy with good news. Oh my goodness, you just made a lot of money. We're going to give you a big bonus. Everybody feels good. Can you also do it with bad news? And let me give an example to the emerging leader. I'm coaching a leader, a senior leader this time in a big company. An employee made an egregious mistake and it's going to cost the company a lot of money. This company happens to use email because they're global and giving feedback. And I convinced the leader to send me the email before he sent it to the employee. And here was the email. You made a huge mistake. It's going to cost us lots of money. If you do it again, you'll be fired. And I said, may I coach you? <laughs> and he said, yes, three changes. Now, I hope emerging leader, you're listening. Number one, I care for you. I care about you. Number two, you have great potential as a leader in this company. You made a big mistake. Do not run away from the mistake. And then sentence three, which we add, what will we learn so that you'll get better? It's not a threat. You'll be fired. Notice what I'm trying to do is say, leaders... When someone leaves an interaction with you, they should feel better about themselves. That for me, Alan, becomes an essence for an emerging leader to gain a relationship and for a senior leader 
as part of their brand and as part of their reputation. That reframing is absolutely perfect. And it shows empathy, compassion, emotional intelligence, things that the first email example didn't. Which brings me to another topic, Dave. You and a team of researchers studied what the best leaders do, and you built a course to teach and share those findings. I want to unpack your key findings because I think there's some really amazing things. I had a chance to interview some of those graduates of the program on the stage in New York at the conference board that took your program and these new skills. And it was the inclusive environment and empathy and compassion and emotional intelligence. So I would love to talk about that. And my first question for you is, how do you make sense of all that with regard to this new world of work? One side of that course is content. I'll talk about that. I think without good content, you're not going to have a good course. The other side is process, pedagogy. How do you engage people even at a distance? When we studied content of leadership, we went to 15 people who had done collectively over 3 million 360s, thought leaders in our field. And if I start naming them, they'll be offended I didn't name them. So just think of somebody who's done a 360. We went to him and we said two questions. What have you learned? What makes an effective leader? And number two, what percent of good leadership are these same basic skills? We took that data and we created what we call the leadership code. And we said, here's five basic things leaders need to do to be successful. Set a strategy, execute, get results, manage your people today, manage your people for the future, and manage yourself. We then began to get behaviors that are concrete, that are not tied to a place. It's a behavior, setting a strategy. Do the people I work with have a sense of the direction and where we're going? Getting results. Do I hold people accountable in person or virtually? Managing people. Do I connect with people? That content, we believe, is key. Now, could you tell us two or three tips about the pedagogy that allowed us to teach people to do that even when they're not in person? You did that with you and me and Corp U. We've had the privilege of learning from you over the decades. What's some of the keys to that process? I think for me, the thing that has been most exciting over the last perhaps dozen years is just the idea of experimenting with rather than connect people to content as your primary focus, put primacy on connecting people to people and create a human experience in which the content merely acts as a lens through which you engage in dialogue. People learn best when they learn together. And if they can connect and build a network to make sense of the world and find their way forward in this world, learning skills, solving problems, and doing it together, that network will outlast any of the skills and the skills will depreciate over time. And the network maybe holds you accountable and helps bring you back up when you hit your lows and celebrate with you when you hit your highs. And you know, all things being equal, I think building a networked model of learning is a great thing. And if you put these two together, it's the idea of building organizational capabilities instead of individual competence. If you think about this sort of cohort effect and learning together, that you can actually put the focus on strengthening people's ties and build org capabilities. And this individual competence comes along for the ride for free. It's just a different way to think about it. I so agree. I see on your shelf a book called Victory Through Organization. For those listening, look at your fingers for a minute and assume they're your talent. They're your people. You got great people. Look at your other hand as a fist. That's your organization. That's your team. That's the collection of individuals working together. We've done a lot of research. What matters more for a company's success? Organization outperforms talent four to one. Part of learning and development is getting people together. The most exciting training we do to develop leaders 
is when people come as a team. We're going to give you individual skills, but we're going to give you a collective capability and the ability to try to manage a project that will help us be successful as a company. It's hard to be a leader without skills. It's hard to be the winner of the golden boot if you can't play good soccer. Learn the skills. Learn how to build a team. Your job as a leader is to make someone else better. Do I, as a leader, empower others? How do I make others on my team more effective than any of us would be individually? And when we can manage that process, I think we are successful as an emerging leader and our team and our organization is also successful. Can you talk about building trust in this environment? I mean, the expert on trust is Stephen M. R. Covey. It's the eighth habit. The seven habits are great. Trust is the foundation. And trust is, am I predictable? Am I dependable? Am I reliable? Will I do what I say? Absent that sense of trust, it's hard to make any long-term commitments. And so as a leader, do I trust my employees and do they in turn trust me? And so we have to invest in building trust. And how does that come? Start with relationships. Break bread. Have a casual discussion. Let people get to know each other at a more personal level so that they see each other. They talk with each other. They build a contract. And when you can build that in your team, they begin to establish a foundation of trust. I was taken back by something published in the Wall Street Journal in March of this year. And it was interesting. A manager has greater influence on employee mental health than a therapist or a doctor and equal influence to a spouse or partner. This is what the survey said. The second piece of information, this is the shocking part, and I'd love to get your take on it. 75% of employees say stress from work negatively impacts their home life, 75%. Yet 90% of HR and C-suite leaders say working at their company has a positive impact on mental health. I'm just wondering, are senior leaders really disconnected from reality, or do you think there's some other explanation? We did a survey once about what is it customers want from our company? And we got data from those inside the company, frontline people who work with customers, middle managers, senior leaders. We got the customer answers from a thousand customers, and then we compared them to each group. The salespeople overlapped 85%. Middle managers, and you can go quickly, 70%. The higher up you went in the company, the more distant it was. We got to the top 10 people of the company. We have good news and bad news. What's the good news? The 10 of you agree about what you think customers want. The bad news is you're not even close. You're only 50% overlap. Here's the takeaway. Get out of your office. Get out of your office. When I see that data, it's really disheartening because it says that this gap between the haves and the have-nots, the senior and the junior is higher, and it needs to be the opposite. We need leaders who are out there touching, talking, being with people. As an emerging leader, don't let it get to your head. The things that got you there as a leader, probably your relationships, your credibility, even build on that. Get out of your office. Leadership is not a role. Leadership is a relationship. And we need managers and leaders who maintain that relationship. And still, as we talked about, this is the paradox, hold people accountable. The one thing I would say on mental health that I've learned in the last six months, mostly from my wife, who's a very good psychologist, in the mental health area, depression looks back. I'm discouraged about my past. I'm trying to uncover my past. Anxiety looks forward. We see both. People are depressed about where they've come from. Now they're very anxious about an unknown future. But the biggest issue today is loneliness in the present. And what my wife and I have been talking about lately is how do you begin to create hope and overcome that feeling of isolation and loneliness? Do I have someone to call? Our sense is that that loneliness crisis may be what's underneath some of that data of the burnout, of the stress. How do we help people not feel that isolation that's there? 
mental health is just high on my issue right now because the employee experience drives the customer experience. There's some wonderful work by Marty Seligman, the father of positive psychology. He talks about replacing helplessness with hopefulness. Three things. Give your employees efficacy. Efficacy means if they work hard, they can achieve a goal. Let your employees see a line of sight. Two, give your employees a sense of optimism. Focus on the future. What could we do? And three, inventiveness. Allow your employees to create new solutions. I believe that in this world of mental health crises, which we're in more than we've ever seen it today on every dimension, give people hope, efficacy, optimism, and inventiveness so that the loneliness that they may experience gets overcome. Self-determination theory says I need some autonomy to do good work, a chance to get better at something, achieve competence, and I need to have some relatedness, some relationships. But you've studied this better than anybody. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about what you see about how leaders create this environment in which people are intrinsically motivated. You're a leader, emerging or senior. Somebody comes to you with a challenge. We're having trouble meeting this customer requirement. Our quality's going down. Instead of saying, let me tell you what I've done five times in my life. No. What do you think? What do you think? Number one, they probably thought about it more than you have as a leader. Number two, they're the ones that are going to have to do it. And self-determination, your words, begins to be efficacy if the employee discovers the opinion that works for them. What do you think? Now, they may think wrong. And so the leader says, have you considered? Have you also considered? So instead of uh, coaching is not telling, coaching is engaging and advising so that other people come up with their ideas. Four simple words. What do you think? I think that's so useful as a leader to get in your mind. Uh, can you give me 60 seconds on your concept of believe, belong, become? Today, employee experience is a critical factor. We did a book, my wife and I did a book called Why of Work, where we looked at all the research on employee engagement. She's a psychologist. I'm an organizational person. Today, we think there's four things, and I'm going to add one. When you as a leader are working with your employees to give them a great experience at work, it's building on motivation, satisfaction, engagement, commitment. There's four things. Number one, be safe, physical and psychological. I think we've learned that from the pandemic. People who don't feel safe will not be connected. Believe, connect your values as an individual with a company values. What do you want to be known for? How does the company help you foster purpose and belief? Be safe, believe, become. Are you able to learn and grow in this job? And four, belong. How do we create a community where your strengths are accepted and your weaknesses are accepted as well? All of that is about brand. Alan, I'm going to do a strange thing. I love that metaphor brand. Over your right shoulder is the picture of a man. I think I know who it is. Yeah, my dad. How has his brand affected your personal brand? How is his legacy showing up through you? Because I think that metaphor, a brand, is a legacy from leader one to leader two to leader three. I've heard you talk about your father, and I know people may have this only by voice. Alan's father is behind him in a picture with a uniform. I just love you to tell us how his identity has become part of your brand. Yeah, there's nothing that I have done or thought about as a leader where I don't at some point reflect back on what would my dad do? What would my dad's point of view be? Everything, even in my family life, if I'm buying a house or building or raising kids, you almost always reflect back. So my dad was a critical part of forming my thinking as a leader. My counsel to those listening, build your own personal brand. 
but build it based on those previous leaders, a mom, a dad, a mentor, so that your customers will have a better experience with you and your company. When that happens, all of these challenges begin to get put aside. I'm honored to join your listeners and to share some of our ideas with them. Dave, thanks so much. Final questions, we wrap up. What are you curious about and learning now? (laughs) I love to be ahead of the point of the spear. I'm starting to think that the HR issues, people, organization, are the next agenda for business leaders. And we're calling that human capability. That HR is not about HR. It's about building human capability with the board, with the customer, with the investor, and in the community. And I'm trying to get the whole entire movement of HR to get out of navel glazing. HR is not about your HR program or practice. You got to do it. But can we help boards of directors, senior executives, customers, investors, and communities recognize the power of human capability and build that into their thinking? That's a movement. That's an agenda. HR is too important to trust it only to HR people. We've got to get it in the minds of all of the executives and stakeholders. That's the agenda we're trying to work on. Dave, I'm so grateful that you joined us today and so supportive of the great work that you do. I mean, you've made a bigger impact on the practice of HR and organizations than likely anyone in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. What a privilege. Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. Soundboard.